Chapter 16, Part 2 in the sermon series, The Gospel of John, spoken by Pastor Doug Cho. Has anyone ever been in a dramatic relationship? More specifically, a dramatic long-distance relationship? All right, at least I got some people. Uh, 14 years ago, I met a girl in Korea. Right, I graduated college a little late, and I went to Korea, and we were partying with friends, and I met a girl. And we spent a few weeks together just hanging out as a group. <laughs> and I fell in love. I fell in love. And everything about this relationship was dramatic from start to finish. And so as I was departing Korea, we were dreading the day that I was leaving. She took the bus with me from Seoul to Incheon. It's like a pretty long ride. Um, and at the airport... You know, it's a nice airport, so we walked around, and we killed time until my flight. <clears throat> and then um, you get to this little area where it's like there's these tinted doors, and there's people waiting for you to scan your boarding pass. And that is where our farewell began. And if you know anything about dramatic, long-distance relationships, you know that farewells are like the end of the world. Call me. Text me. Think about me. When will I see you? Are you going to miss me? Of course I'm going to miss you. And we got like each other like surprise gifts. I got you this. I got you this. And we cried. We hugged for like 10 minutes. And I cringe because there's people like waiting like for me to scan my ticket. <laughs> I have this like long farewell. <laughs> I only bring this up because farewells are hard. But we're actually closing out Jesus' farewell to his disciples. And in this, he has some last minute words for them some last-minute teaching, some promises, some assurances for them because he's worried about them because he loves them. Disciples are completely unaware, oblivious. They have no idea where he's going, what he's going to do. But Jesus takes the time to say things to them, to explain things to them. There's something so heartfelt about Jesus here. He could have been really cut and dry. Listen, I'm doing something. I'm going to be back. I will return. But he does so much more than that. Right? He goes through so much, this process that we've been looking at for the past few months. Right? It's the past few chapters. I know it's been a long time. But he prepares a Passover meal for them. He has a room for them where they can spend time together. He washes their feet. He teaches them how to love one another. He predicts their denial, their betrayal. But then he teaches about the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit is going to take care of them even after he's gone. He goes through all these things to make sure that his disciples are grounded in something. They don't get it, right, even though he gives them all this imagery. But let's not read the disciples in this gospel as stupid, 
or slow because they don't have the gift of hindsight like we do. And honestly, when we read this, we see that Jesus has such a deep understanding for his people. So today, we're going to look at four assurances that Jesus gives us, four assurances in John 16. But before we get to the text, let's just bow our heads together. Let's commit this time. And I just want to ask you in your own words, just uh, commit this time of worship under the word to God. So, Father, we thank you for your presence. Thank you for dwelling with us in this place, in this room. Would you anoint every chair in this room, God, every person sitting, God, everyone who hears, Lord, that they would hear your voice, experience your presence, and, Lord, that they would meet you face to face, Lord, right now, in Jesus' name, that, God, we would encounter the living God. Father, would you be over us, speak over us, heal us, rebuke us, encourage us. All glory, all power, all honor is yours. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This is John 16, 16. Jesus went on to say, in a little while, you'll see me no more. And then after a little while, you'll see me. At this, some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying, in a little while you'll see me no more, and then after a little while you'll see me? And because I'm going to the Father. They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while you'll see me no more, and then after a little while you'll see me? It's like a tongue twister. The disciples have no idea what's going on. Literally, zero clue. And so Jesus is actually spending time encouraging them in this moment where he's giving them assurance. He's like, I'll be back for you. I'm coming back, I promise. But this encouragement, way over their heads. Okay? So in actuality, via the text, our first assurance for today is actually, it's okay to be confused. It's okay to be confused. We won't always get it. A lot of commentators, they write, you know, the disciples didn't understand what Jesus was quite saying because they didn't have the Holy Spirit explaining or revealing these things to them. I kind of get that, and I think that's partially true. But even when the Holy Spirit comes, if you look at the Apostle Peter, he doesn't quite grasp everything yet. He needs to be taught. He needs things explained. And yes, that is through the Holy Spirit. But if you think about faith today... How many of us have been confused by faith? How many of us have wandered even with faith? How many of us don't know what we're called to do in faith? And this is life with the Holy Spirit, right? This is life with the Holy Spirit in us, living in us presently. And so we see this 
God who has equipped his people. And you know, like, there's this image because, you know, Jesus is our shepherd. And like sheep, we follow him. We follow his voice. We follow him. And as he calls us to him, we follow him. And he takes care of his sheep. I really believe that he knew his people were going to be confused. I really believe that he saw it in his people, that understanding wasn't going to be something that happened in an instant. And so thank God for the Holy Spirit. Thank God that we have the Holy Spirit to make these things palpable for us. And so I want you to kind of look at this scene right now and imagine, right? And, you know, the disciples, they're, they're, they're so f- simple. That's a great word. They're so simple in that, you know, they, they literally hear what Jesus has to teach and they get together. They love them. They're like, what, you, what is he talking about? What does he mean by when he said that? And they're like, do you know? Do you know? And Jesus is like, do you want me to explain it to you? And so there's a simplicity there in this relationship. But we can't get that twisted, right? That simplicity isn't a bad thing. That simplicity is a good thing. Because we have a God who's willing to explain. We have a God who's willing to reveal. It's okay to be confused. Okay? Verse 20. Very truly I tell you, you'll weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You'll grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy. That child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. The grief the disciples are going to experience is witnessing Jesus, losing Jesus when he's murdered on the cross. The joy that they're going to experience is his resurrection when he returns and when he spends time with them before he ascends. It's their joy. Jesus then uses this example of a woman giving birth and the pain that comes with childbirth. And I've got to say, this example is actually very, very relevant for where he's going with this illustration. See, there's nothing more insane that people do naturally than giving birth to a child. There's nothing crazier and there's nothing more barbaric than childbirth. I'm telling you, my wife wanted a child so bad. She wanted baby so bad. She made a hashtag to pressure me via social media to give her child. When, she, when we conceived, thank the Lord, when she conceived, she was so happy. And as she grew and as she gained weight and as her ankles got swollen and as her body changed and as her back started hurting and as she went through all this pain, she was still so excited to have this baby. We scheduled her to get induced so we knew the day. We woke up that day. She skipped out of our apartment because she was so happy to have this baby. We took selfies at the hospital. Because we were so ready to have this baby. But then labor happened. Labor is war. Labor is war. Her epidural didn't work. They stabbed her in the back four times with this needle. It didn't work. She's screaming in pain. 
I'm holding her. They told me to hold her leg. So I'm holding her leg. And I'm like, are you okay? No, she's not okay. But I'm like yelling, like, you can do it. And I'm looking and I'm like, oh my God. And there's like all this stuff. And I'm I'm telling you, the woman's body is the most powerful thing on earth. Wow. The things you go through to give birth to a child. And then this baby, she just, she came out. Looked like a ghost because they're like blue, right? I was like, oh my God, we have a baby. And I felt so much joy. So much joy. That's my baby. That's Lucy. We have so much joy. She don't, they don't look like that when they come out. Right? They don't look like, they look like aliens when they come out. But she, I was like, oh my God, that's my baby. Came out. And then I looked at my wife. She looked unhinged. She looked like a wild woman. She popped blood vessels in her face. Her lips were torn up because they were so chapped from breathing. She looked traumatized. She was traumatized. She was traumatized. And when we went home, she looked at me. She said, never again. <laughs> never again. And then there's the sleepless nights, right? People don't tell you sleep deprivation is a form of torture. But then there's the sleepless nights, right? I did the night shift. I did a night shift. I put my time in. But she has to wake up every three hours to pump breast milk, right? 12, 30, 12 to 5.30 a.m. Those were my peak hours, right? And we took care of this child, this child that doesn't respond to you. But then they grow. And then you start experiencing all this joy. They laugh. They giggle. They make funny faces. I'm super biased, but I think she's super cute, right? But then there's all this joy that comes with it. And so this is like seven months later. Seven months later, she turns to me and she said, when are we doing it again? (laughs) Because you get amnesia. You forget. You forget you gained 20 pounds during this time because all you ate was takeout, right? (laughs) But there's so much joy that comes with this baby. That is the illustration Jesus is giving to us. He is literally birthing a new creation. That's the language we're going to use here. He is birthing a new creation. He is going through pains to birth a new creation. Reverse the curses that came from the fall. Reverse what sin had done into the world. So he is saying, I am, when Jesus says, I am making all things new, he literally means, I am making all of creation new again. He is birthing something new. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more. So, our second illustration, our second assurance for us is grief will come, pain will come for a while. But our joy is everlasting. Our hope is everlasting. Our hope is unshakable because of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Verse 23. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. Though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day, you ask in my name, 
I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. Back in those days, priests were absolutely necessary in order for any person to interact with God in any way. Offer sacrifices, whatever that might be, had to be done through a priest. Jesus is doing away with all of this. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm removing these systems. And he gives us our third assurance. You have direct access to God. You have direct access to God. When he says, in my name, in his name, we are invoking the will and the authority of Jesus. In our prayers, when we pray in Jesus' name, you pray with the very authority of Jesus. It is as if Jesus himself is praying to God because that has been given to you. That has been won and bought for you. That is the power of your prayer. Now, when we say when we say in his name, we also talk not just about authority. We talk about his will. And we talked about this weeks ago. When your heart is aligned with Jesus, when it's in line with him, you pray the things that Jesus has prayers for for this world. You pray the things that Jesus, his heart, you reflect more of his heart. But in order to know the heart of God, you've got to know God. In order to know the heart of God, you've got to know God. And so in that, in the way that we have direct access to him, we are able to have a direct relationship with him. Let's look at Acts 19. Acts 19. The apostles are doing these incredible works through the Holy Spirit, right? God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. So that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick. And their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews went around driving out evil spirits, tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered, Jesus I know and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. He beat them so hard their clothes came off. But I'm telling you right now, authority in God only comes from relationship. These seven sons of the chief priest, they saw, they were still trying to do their thing. They were trying, still trying to minister, but they saw all the, like, what Paul is doing is working. He's doing these miraculous things. Maybe his methodology is working, so let's try it. Let's try whatever he's doing, and maybe it'll work. But they have no relationship with Jesus. They don't know him. Does God know you? If Sunday is your only source of time with the Lord, I would say your relationship lacks intimacy. I would say you have an indirect relationship with God. I would say that your relationship is through someone else because you're, it's through a preacher. It's through someone. There is nothing better Nothing better. No book, no teaching, no speaker. There is nothing that can replace your time with God. Nothing. 
I don't care how gifted, how anointed, how talented they are. Your time with God trumps everything. Amen. We need to do that interior work. We need to do that. We need to spend our time with him. We need to commit to being with him in that way. And yes, we need to do interior work too. You know, John Calvin says this. He says, without knowledge of self, there's no knowledge of God. Many of us have strongholds, things that we carry, shame, sin, guilt, condemnation that we carry with us. We need to do a work on those things too. But we need to pursue God day in and day out. And we have to understand, we talk about heaven, we think of heaven, we hope for heaven all the time. But heaven is just a picture of dwelling with God. And guess what? You can do that today. You can dwell with God today. You can spend time, you can be with him now. Jesus is calling us right now. He says, take a hold of this. It's yours. You have access because the Father loves you. The Father loves you. That's why you get to do it. You know, part of the theology of the cross is that Jesus came on our behalf for our sins because of the love of God. And when he died on our behalf, a veil, a literal curtain, a thick curtain, literally, that was its purpose was to hold in and contain the holiness of God's presence. It literally tore and fell to the ground. Think about that image. Think about that illustration. It literally tore. The holy presence of God what had been separating it from God's people is no longer there. And we get to encounter that presence for ourselves. That is what was bought for you. That was what was gifted unto you. And many of us, and Mike, I'm talking about myself included, many of us, and maybe it's because of the times we live in, many of us, and maybe it's because we have so much going on, but many of us have traded that in for busyness. Many of us have traded that in for work. Many of us have traded that in for ambition. Many of us have traded that in because we're just exhausted. We need to veg out. God is inviting us in. Literally. Not, he didn't just send you the invitation. He literally opened the door. Come. Come be with me. Spend time with me. Be with me in that way. There is a directness there. And when Jesus is talking about birthing a new creation, right? They call him the second Adam. We talk, we have this Eden imagery that comes up. We're going back to a time where we have heaven on earth because God is there. And think about the garden. Think about the garden. Adam and Eve dwelling with God in this place. Directly speaking to him hearing from him, taking his will, understanding what we're called to do. He tells them, I'm calling you to work and to keep this place, to have dominion over everything. And he calls them in. And he, he's in close proximity with his people there. That word, work and to keep, it's two Hebrew words, abad and shamar. Think about the garden. 
My work and keep sounds like, oh, like mow the, mow the grass, like cut the hedges, pick the trees, right? Those two words are the same words <clears throat> that are used to describe the work that priests do in the temple, which is to worship and to keep the word of God. So there's this relationship, there's this link there that we have to work and to keep, to keep the word of God. And that is what God is calling us to do as his priesthood, as his people. You are called to work and to keep. You are called to watch over creation in that way. You're called to pray my will over things with my authority in my power because you have direct access to me. That is what we live into. That was what was bought for you. Why would we trade it for anything else? Why trade it for anything else? Why be satisfied with 90 minutes a week on a Sunday? Why not desire to linger in his presence? Why not desire to meet with him every day? To rest in him? To remember that his promises for us are so true. That he has peace for you. That he brings you the still waters. He is your rod and your staff. He is with you in the valley. He is with you in your darkness. He is with you in your brokenness. He loves you. He's calling you. You have direct access to God. 29. Then Jesus' disciples said, Now, you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Do you now believe? Jesus replied, A time is coming, and in fact has come, when you will all be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So the disciples have this moment where they're like, oh, Jesus, we get it now. You speak plainly. Truly you are from God. And almost sarcastically, Jesus is like, do you? Are you sure? Because, like, you're going to scatter and abandon me. Do you get it? And, you know, it's true. If the disciples truly understood that he was the son of God and they were able to connect the works that he had been doing and his power and who he is and the work that he had promised them and all the things that he was saying, they wouldn't have scattered in fear. They wouldn't have abandoned him. They wouldn't have given up hope. And Jesus knows this. Jesus knows this. But then he gives them one of the most encouraging lines of Scripture. Verse 33. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. This is the last assurance for today. We won't be perfect, but Jesus is perfect. Jesus 
has overcome. Jesus foretold everything, everything that they would do. Peter's denial, Judas's, Judas's betrayal, his arrest. He knows where he's going. Jesus has foretold it all. He knows that they're going to abandon him. They, he knows that they're not going to be faithful. But you know what he says? He says, I wish you peace. I wish you peace. And there's it's something beautiful about this promise here, this wish that he has for them. We're going to look at it a couple chapters later. But when Jesus returns, he says, for the, when the disciples, in fear of the Jews, the doors were locked. They were hiding away. Jesus appears among them. He doesn't knock the door down. He doesn't kick it down. He doesn't do any of that. He appears before them. And he says, peace be with you. And he breathes on them the Holy Spirit. Peace be with you. His desire for them is peace. Despite it all. Despite all that they do. It's peace. There's just something so fantastic, something so incredible about the way God puts together this redemption plan. I've shared this before, but like, you know, when I was working my corporate job in the city, you know, like we were at a bar with a bunch of finance bros and this guy finds out that I'm a Christian and he's like, I don't get why God had to send his son Jesus to die. Because if God's mighty, he could like, you know, like just fix everything. Everybody fix, you know? I was like, this is like such a loaded conversation to be having at happy hour. But sure. But there is this misconception about God in Scripture. And yes, God is holy. He's just and he, he desires that. That's who he is. But when, even when, when you look at the Eden narrative, when you read that, and so Eden, like all the creation narrative was written way after, way, way, way after, right? The people were looking back and writing. These writers, they're so intentional about weaving in this closeness of God. God is so close. He is so intimate with his creation. He touches creation. Eve is literally, you know, it says they he takes Adam's side. It's not really his rib, it's his side, whatever. But he touches it. His fingerprints are on that. He breathes his neshama. He breathes his spirit into that creation. Wow. That closeness that we have with the Lord, God Almighty, that we can live into that. There's this intimacy there that is woven throughout all the Old Testament. Think about it. Adam and Eve, they, you know, they disobey him. But God approaches them. He says, where are you? Where are you? He knows where they are. He says, where are you? He invites them in. Cain kills his brother. Cain kills Abel. God says, what have you done? He says, I don't know. But God already knew. It's not like God needs to ask him to know. He already knows. But he invites him in. He gives him space. 
Both of these things, they demanded death. They required death. But what does he do? He kicks, he kicks Adam and Eve out the garden. And then he goes with them. Cain is exiled. But then he goes with Cain. He protects him. Goes with him. There is such an intimacy and grace that God operates with throughout all of Scripture that we have to see when we read this passage because Jesus is this embodiment of it all. As he gives his farewell to the disciples, they have no clue what's going to happen. They're ignorant. They're not understanding. They fall short. They're going to betray him. But Jesus says, I wish you peace. Because my desire for you is to live that way. I want you to know that your hope in me is rock solid because I am rock solid on your behalf. I want you to know you have nothing to fear because I have overcome fear. I want you to know you don't have to be scared of death because I will break it for you. That is the God that we worship. And when I think about that, when I think about the intimacy and the way that God had put together redemption because remember, redemption started the moment sin came into the world. So through all of scripture, God works in such a way to call his people back home. He says, they will be my people. I will be their God. I'm going to write my word onto their heart. And we can't just say enough about how much God loves us. So much to the fact that the apostle Paul says, I pray that the people of God would have power, not power for miracles, not power for supernatural things, power just to know how much God loves you. That's all. Just power so that you would know the very depth and height and width of God's love for you. And so when I think about that, when we think about that, we cannot help, we should be overwhelmed because this love is so unfathomably large. You should be overwhelmed. We should be prostrated onto the ground in worship to God in his presence because he has invited us into a place. And this is not because out of guilt. This is not out of shame. This is not out of fear because Jesus had conquered those things. This is because simply I am overwhelmed, God, that you love me this much. That is the God that we worship. That is the opportunity that was bought for you. That is Jesus' assurance here for you. That trouble will come. It's a promise. It's a guarantee. Trouble's going to come. But take heart. Be bold. Have courage. I've overcome the world. Yeah. Our God is good. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Let's pray together. Let's just respond to the word on our own. Could you just go to, go to the Lord and just, just thank him? Thank him. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus.
Thank you, Jesus. Father, for those who feel far away from you, Lord, would you touch them with your spirit? In Jesus' name. For those who are guilt-ridden and feel hesitant to approach you, God, Lord, would you free them from those shackles and let them know your invitation stands the same. You are inviting them to you. Lord God, help us, Father, your people, your priests. Help us to understand you more, to know your will, to know your heart, to know you, God, because you are worthy. 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 Thank you, Father, for the ways in which you work, the ways in which you move. That your plan was a reflection of your love. So, God, I pray too that your church, your people, would experience that anew today. that we would experience your love once again. Father, thank you for this time. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.